Last week, as, as we gathered, if you remember, we heard of Samuel, who uh, was called by God, and Samuel didn't understand it was a call of God. And, and uh, as I said at that time, it, the preface of that was uh, the, the call of God was rare, and even Eli himself didn't fully understand. And this week, we might have kind of an under, a deeper understanding of why that was the case. And if you read it outside of the context of the whole of scriptures, today's first reading, we might say, wait a minute, there has to be a mistranslation. Why would the people say, don't talk to us, God? But that's exactly what they did. And this occurred, of course, at Mount Horeb, as it's named today, also known as Mount Sinai. God had called an assembly of the people through Moses, told them to prepare, they were to to fast and, and to cleanse themselves, that he was going to speak to them. And he did so with fire and lightning and sound and thunder. And it was so magnificent and so horrifying at the same time that the people begged, please tell God not to talk to us like this any longer. So if we want to blame somebody for not being able to hear God's voice, we can blame Adam and Eve, actually, because that's at the root of what it was that caused this, the Hebrew children to reject the voice of God. Fear. The fear that creeps in because of original sin. The fear that creeps in. But God, notice, and even in today's reading, does not want to abandon them to their own ignorance. He wants to continue to teach them. So he promises that he will raise up a prophet like Moses. Well, the prophet to be raised up is unlike Moses because he's greater than Moses. Not only does he uh, give the law, the new law, but he is the lawgiver. Not only does he proclaim the word of God, but he is the word of God, made flesh, Jesus Christ. If we reduce the prophet to one who just speaks uh, of the future, who fortune tells, we might miss that point. Because that's not what a prophet is, first of all, although some of their prophetic ministry might be to tell what's going to happen in the future. Usually, if you ignore the word of God, this is what's going to happen. But a prophet is somebody who speaks on behalf of God. Somebody which, you know, I have to admit in the past when I've talked about Jesus as prophet, I've always felt that kind of uneasiness in my stomach because Jesus is much more than a prophet. He's not just speaking for God. He is God who speaks to us with a human voice or spoke to, to the apostles and the disciples of the first century with a human voice. And because we know that he had a human voice then, we can trust him now. But notice, too, there's that that warning to prophets, and those of us who preach, those of us who teach in the name of Jesus, need to take that warning to task. If we say something that is not true, that God does not command us, we will be held responsible. In fact, he tells us we will experience death. That's all horrible thought to have, especially on a Sunday morning at Catholic Schools Week, isn't it? But all the more impresses on us the task for us, or given that privilege of speaking for God, or teaching for God. And I have to admit, as I turn to this gospel passage, I had this thought this week, of, I never saw it in this light, and, and uh, I know it's because of uh, my own ignorance that I hadn't considered this. 
But Reggie mentioned original sin with Adam and Eve, their rejection of God and the separation that they experienced, separation from their own bodies and the shame that they had of realizing they were naked, the separation between them. The woman gave it to me, the snake made me, blaming each other and blaming everyone else and being afraid of God. That separation, original sin that came to us through them, through their sin, has four effects, and I've talked about these effects before. I use a mnemonic called the four Ds. We usually, I have to admit, I usually think of only the first two, death and disease. We know that death is so much part of our fallen world that we experience death and separation. It's not just a physical death, but a death of relationship, the death of a relationship with God and moral sin, a death in our own selves, that we are broken from ourselves and and our bodies and souls are so easily hurt and, and divided. And we know disease is so much a part of our lives. How many of us have a little twinge of pain every once in a while, arthritis, or, or some of us with uh, heart or stomach issues, or uh, uh, with uh, cancers, or, or psoriasis or uh, cirrhosis of the liver. Or, you know, we can rattle off disease after disease. And, the, and I, I don't know if this church would be large enough to hold all the papers, all the, all the descriptions of every disease the human condition can have. But we know disease is so much a part of this fallen world. And we hear of Jesus' ministry who comes to raise the dead, to suffer on the cross, to give us eternal life. And we hear of Jesus healing the sick, and raising them up from their mats and up from their beds, of women who come forward just to touch the hem of his garment so that they may be healed. Time and again and again, Jesus confronts death and disease. And every once in a while, we might think about the third D of this desire to sin, concupiscence, this brokenness in us that so often we desire what is not right for us, or this disordinate desire, this disordered desire. And uh, St. John, in his letter, talks about the the three concupiscences, lust of the flesh, that we like to fill our bellies and like to have good things around us and comforts of the flesh, lust of the eyes, we surround ourselves with beautiful things, of nice, lovely, wonderful things to look at, and pride of life. Our own pride and our own egos getting in the way so often. Some of Jesus' teaching is to help us confront that desire to sin, too. But more and more, and this is the, 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 the first time I really thought of this, or realized this, perhaps. Maybe it was taught to me a long time ago, and I just simply forgot, which just goes again to prove the fourth D of darkened intellect. That we don't always grasp as we should. That we don't always understand what we should. It's not that with, a, with an enlightened intellect we understand all and we see all and we can explain uh, nuclear fission or, or, or quantum mechanics or all those things, and these things that are so often beyond us. But that we grasp the truth and we understand the truth when it's explained to us, that we know what we need to know in order to function. And we struggle with this, don't we? I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one that has a darkened intellect. 
I'm being a little facetious this morning. We all have this darkened intellect. We all have this, this where we cannot think as we ought. And Jesus comes to teach. And, the, and this is the first chapter of St. Mark's Gospel. The first chapter. And yet, time and again, we hear how they're amazed at his teaching. They're amazed at his teaching. For he teaches as one with authority. Not as the scribes. Not as the, the rabbis. Not as the Pharisees. Not as the Sadducees. He teaches with authority. We might miss the meaning of that. But the word for authority in Greek is from his own existence, from his own being, from his very self. He teaches because he is the prophet God has sent, the word of God who speaks truth to us. His teaching is as core to his ministry as his dying on the cross. His teaching is what he is doing what he does to help us conquer that darkened intellect. Even in the parables, we hear, and he, he asks uh, at one point, we heard this this week, do you not understand? How are you going to understand the rest of the parables if you don't understand this parable? He's confronting that darkened intellect. It's just as important for him as dying on the cross to give us eternal life. It's how important it is to know the truth of God. This is why God does not abandon his people when they beg him, please don't talk to us. He wants us to know the truth. And the beauty is the truth is noble. It's noble too, but knowable. That we can know it. This is the very basis of science. So often we're accused as Catholics as being anti-science. I don't know where that comes from. We're not anti-science. We're anti-false science. Or, or just extrapolating from uh, meaningless uh, uh, data something that may or may not be true. But the very scientific endeavors of our ancestors were done because they knew God made the world knowable and rational. That he set it in course with certain rules and regulations that even Newton's laws an object at rest will remain at rest unless acted upon, or an object in motion will re- remain in motion unless acted upon by external force, or, or equal but opposite reactions, all these things. Or things that are more complex. The inner workings of the atom, the inner workings of uh, the, the subatomic particles. All these things we can study because God has made them consistent. We live in a world that has begun to deny, has begun to deny uh, objective truth, has begun to deny basic things. I don't know if you've come across it, but I have a number of times, this uh, so-called anti-racist teachings, that to be anti-racist, we have to realize that math itself might be racist. I don't know where that's coming from, but one plus, plus one, according to them, doesn't have to equal two. That's a very white structure. Well, it's reality. And I think that the very teaching that leads to thinking that math or science or whatever is racist or whatever comes from that darkened intellect. Even more so, the ministry of Jesus needs to continue enlightening the human mind. That's why Catholic schools are so important. 
Yes, we get, might get a good education in a public school, but our Catholic schools can remind us the very core of our truth, that, that God has made the world, and he's made it in such a way that we can know it, we can understand it, and that is going to be consistent. That one day isn't, it's not going to be one plus one equals two, but the next day it might be something else. Or that when we mix oxygen and hydrogen together, we're going to, going to get water instead of table salt, or, or whatever it is. And that when we come to a Catholic education, we begin to see not just our faith as being taught, but everything in light of that faith. Music and the arts as an expressions of beauty, truth, and goodness. Uh, sciences and math and, and uh, other truths of being, helping us to understand how and why this world was created. Of, of social studies and, and geography and all those things, of how God wants to govern his people, how God wants us to understand. This world is good and noble, but we have darkened intellects so often, again, the fault of original sin, that so often we might be afraid of the truth just as much as uh, the Hebrews were afraid of the voice of God. We might be afraid of the truth, but the truth will only lead us closer to Jesus Christ, only closer to an understanding of who God the Father is. As Catholics, we're not afraid of the truth. We're afraid of lies, perhaps, and not really afraid, but we hate lies. We hate untruths. Our Catholic schools help us to express that truth and live that truth. I, for one, thank God for my Catholic education, not only uh, the six years that I had at St. Anne's, but at the University of St. Thomas, three years at uh, undergrad, and then, of course, St. Paul Seminary. All those years of seeing the fullness, the oneness of our knowledge and truth and faith, they're all united. Today is a feast, or would be the feast if it weren't on a Sunday, of St. Thomas Aquinas, so often accused of being an egghead, perhaps, or, or a philosopher without uh, any mooring of, of whatever. But he was as much a mystic as he was a philosopher. That he understood the truths, not only of philosophy, not only of theology, but of a life lived for Jesus Christ. At the end of his life, all that he wrote the Summa Theologica and the Summa Gentiles and various other documents to help uh, us understand theology better, philosophy better. All of it, he said, is nothing but straw compared to the glory of God. See, he saw in one take the immensity of God, no longer with a darkened intellect, but with an enlightened intellect that couldn't express the fullness of who God was. And now, we know he's a saint and enjoys that vision of heaven, and that's our hope, too, through our education, Catholic or hopefully educated in the truth all the same, if it's not, to see God, to understand fully, and to live a life continually seeking to mitigate the effects of original sin, not only death and disease, not only the desire to sin, but this day especially, the darkened intellect, enlightened by Christ.